0: to the podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. On today, we have a profound, uplifting, just restorative conversation on the topic of me-search. Before we dig into that conversation, I do want to remind you that we are just days away from having the opportunity to host Catherine Locke in our Slack space. That is a free group that you can join by heading over to QueerWisdom.com. If you are a fan of Catherine Locke's work like I am on April 11th and 12th, when you are in that Slack group, you will be able to post questions, questions, Catherine Locke has agreed to be answering those questions, so any questions about their work or, again, if you're at a school wondering how you can bring Catherine Locke as a guest author to your students, that's a great opportunity to connect with them. Now, on with the show.
1: Um, I'm Amanda Mollett. I use she, hers pronouns. I'm an assistant professor in higher education at the University of Kansas. This is my third year in this role, and I'm surprisingly very very excited about living in Kansas, which I wasn't certain would be the case as a queer woman, Um, but it's really been fabulous. And as I think about myself, my identities, and where that plays in with the work that I do, the ways that I show up. I feel so fortunate that I have the opportunity to engage in what I like to think of in so many ways as me search, of studying things that really have a personal connection, that have a personal relation, where every day I get the opportunity to learn and explore new things that I'm excited about and the opportunity to help create new knowledge. And so as a queer woman, who identifies as demisexual, biromantic, I feel like there are so many opportunities for sharing and being able to talk more about not only what those things mean for me, but helping to broaden and expand understandings for other folks. And I love being able to do that every day through my research and my teaching and all of the different opportunities that I have through this position and role.
2: Well, I'll go next. Um, So my name is Jordan Smoot. I use he, him, and they, them pronouns. Um, I am a graduate student in the Masters of Higher Education Administration program at the University of Kansas. Um, Dr. Mollett is my advisor in that program. Um, And so I also, as a graduate student, I work um, as a graduate assistant in our Sexual Assault Prevention and Education Center. So kind of thinking about what brings me to this work. Um, also a bit of what, what Amanda mentioned with, um, you know, that me search aspect um, and really being able to dig into what it means to be a queer person and the variety of ways that that shows up. Um, I identify as um, bisexual or queer um, and transmasculate. Um, and so thinking about the ways that my identities have shifted over time, Um, particularly given the fact that some of those things happened during my college experience, which is, you know, what I'm pursuing a graduate degree and studying is working with college students and is really what our program focuses on is those um, experiences in higher education um, that students may have. Um, And then I've really found more of a passion for um, sexual violence prevention um, and kind of just thinking more about relationships and how those, um, you know, show up in different spaces and, you know, what relationships are viewed as acceptable and ways of engaging in relationships that are relationships that are viewed as acceptable and what is not societally. Um, and how a lot of that overlaps with queerness. So that's kind kind of the space I'm coming from.
0: I love this concept of me search. And, you know, I, I honestly, I feel like the world would be a better place if everybody was afforded that time and that space to dig into it, regardless of how they identify. Um, I just think that identity work is so important. Um, the two of you are are here today uh, on the show to talk about the, the collaboration that you're doing. You've got a special research project. Um, you know, we're going to talk listeners, if you are already excited, like how can I connect with these two? Um, they, they do have um, an invitation that's coming out to you. So the research project looks at the ways that LGBTQ plus college students engage in healthy relationships. And I would love to hear more from both of you, just sort of the origin story of how this project came to be um, and how you came to center that as the, the sort of topic, the heart and soul of the research that you're doing.
1: Really like, I appreciate you coming back to the me search piece. And I know this doesn't relate to your question, but um I appreciate you coming back to the me search piece because I think it's an interesting context in research because so many people say that our research should be devoid of ourselves, that we should try to separate ourselves from our research. But what I've found and I think what Jordan and I have found is the benefits of doing the exact opposite of really fully, wholly being in our research. And thinking about how this project came to be, at the start of the semester, Jordan was like, hey, maybe we could do some research. What might this look like? And we really both came with a blank slate. We were like, okay, let's talk and see if there's an intersection somewhere, what could this look like? And so we, sat down at a patio table outside of the student union and started talking about all of the things. Some of the things were like conversations and contexts that I don't think people typically have sitting in front of the student union, talking about students engaging in healthy and unhealthy sexual behaviors, talking about the role of BDSM and kink, And it so happened that the board of regents were meeting that day. And so they were like walking right past us as we were having these conversations. Um, But it was exciting talking about some of the things of what do we wanna study? All of my research is about queer things. I've done a lot of asexual research where students really talk about trying to negotiate, navigate, understand relationship and the different types of attraction and what that means. And as Jordan and I were bouncing ideas around, this sort of emerged of like, what does it mean to look at relationships?
2: Yeah, I mean, we were I think we talked for like two hours. I think we had an hour meeting set. Um, but as our meetings go on always over time, uh, we can talk a lot about a lot of things. Um, and so we really just threw a lot of ideas um, off of one another and really centering on that topic of relationships um, and things that don't necessarily get talked about as much. Um, one of the things that um, Amanda brought up is that you know a lot of the research that currently focuses on queer students, queer college students and their relationships centers around instances of sexual violence. And we know that that doesn't fully capture the picture of how queer relationships um, show up in the world. And it, it pathologizes them, you know, if the rates of sexual violence are higher among queer folks than they are necessarily for straight folks. I don't have a statistic for you, but, you know, then then what does that say about queer relationships? Amanda might have have a statistic for you since she does some of this this work related to sexual violence. But, you know, if we're, we're seeing you know, higher rates of sexual violence, what does that tell you about queer relationships? What message is that showing? What conclusions are people going to draw about that number? And you're really not seeing, you know, the sides that are filled with joy and happiness um, and the things that are really positive about queer relationships. And so we just kind of kept hovering around this, this concept that, you know, there's something about queer relationships that just feels, you know, different than straight relationships. And I think that's kind of simplistic to say, but, you know, there is something different and what is that difference and what, what are the things about it that, that can make queer relationships so joyful and healthy?
1: And that's really really where we centered is as we were talking, we realized we don't want to hear folks' trauma stories. We don't want to hear about the challenges, about the barriers, not because those aren't real, but that's where people focus so often. And so we wanted to say, come and talk to us about your joy. Tell us about your love. Help us be able to amplify your stories of being in these healthy relationships. And Jordan and I have had so many conversations trying to think about what does it even mean to define a queer relationship? Like, how do we move beyond not just cisgender heterosexual norms, but how do we think about polyamorous relationships? How do we think about chosen family? How do we think about folks who have platonic life partners? How do we really think expansively about the breadth of queer relationship and what that means and the ways that those really are healthy and affirming and supportive for folks? And so it's been so fun being able to explore some of that, challenging our own beliefs and assumptions as students start talking about things thinking, oh, here's something that I hadn't even thought about that is really amazing and beautiful.
0: I, I love that and it, you know, it reminds me of, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Dr. Jane Ward, who has a, in my opinion, is an excellent book called The Tragedy of Heterosexuality. And she writes a lot about how in queer relationships to a certain extent, those two individuals are free of a lot of paradigms in the ways in which they want to co-construct uh, their relationship. Um, and I think to a certain degree, that's true. But, um, uh, you know, as a, as a queer woman married to a woman, uh, I do find people still do try to overlap, you know, which one of you is the this and which one of you is the that kind of a thing. Um, and just how that urge to put into a box to categorize um, how how that that is so strong. So I know that you, you're you right now, or I believe right now, you're still at that stage of looking for participants. Um, and the call that's going out to participants is in part an invitation to interview. Can you talk a little bit more about what a potential participant might anticipate from the process of, of working with you on this, um, this research project that I'm so excited about? <laughs> Absolutely. We are also so excited
1: about getting to talk with folks. And the way that we're approaching the study is people who express an interest then participate in, they're supposed to be 60 to 90 minute interviews. I don't think I've had any yet that have been under 80 because it's just been so fun getting to talk and share and hear stories from folks. So participating in probably a 90 minute interview And as part of the interview, we also have folks bring photos or images. They can be something that's on your phone. They can be a picture of you and your partner or partners. They can be something that metaphorically makes you think of the relationship. And so when people sign up, we give them a list of words and they get to pick which words they want to use for images so they can choose images for things like joy, conflict, affection. And then we'll have an opportunity for them to share those images and also talk about the importance of those, what those mean in their relationship and really use that as another tool, both for exploring ideas and concepts of relationships, but also hopefully as a future visual opportunity so that it's not just words, but that we can also tangibly show people look at this beautiful queer love that's out there. And so as people go through, they do get to decide if we can share their photos, if we can use them later, or if they're just for our own personal joy during the interview process. But from there, if participants have an interest in receiving the data later, or seeing the work that we're doing, we're certainly able to share that with them as well.
0: You know, that model of bringing an artifact in, I know that I have some listeners who are really interested in different research methods, methodologies. Um, Is there a term that, you know, folks who are interested in in learning about that as a a strategy, um, does that Does that have sort of a term or is there more where folks can go to learn about that model of bring an artifact with you or think about an artifact that matches with absolutely so the method
1: that we're using is called photo elicitation and with photo elicitation the artifact can, as we noted, be used as part of the study, but the artifact is also, again, a tool to help people think differently, to really give folks time to prepare in advance, to start thinking about aspects of their relationship, even for us to ask questions about how people decided which words to select. Did people involve their partners in the process of selecting those. And so through that process of photo elicitation, part of that is also shifting control away from the researcher, where the participant is the one that really guides that, that they get to think about, this is what's important to me. This is what I wanna talk about, as opposed to so many interviews that really have a pretty strict structure of like, here are questions one through 10, and this is all that I wanna know. For us. This really is another way to queer the work of saying, we want to know what we don't know because there are likely so many things that we haven't thought about, so many ways that students are engaging relationships that we haven't considered. So this is a way in space for us to try to create opportunities for people to bring that authentically, even if we haven't come up with a question that might directly ask about those pieces.
0: I love that. In a way, it's sort of like your me-search is a catalyst for participatory me-search as well. That's really beautiful. Um, I I know that perhaps you're you're maybe not trying to fast forward and think about the research being completed, or maybe you are looking forward to that part of the process. I'm not sure, but um, in what ways might fellow educators benefit from your research uh, once it's at that stage where it's being shared? Um, and when it is at that stage, where might we be able to go to access it?
2: Yeah, so I can speak to this a little bit. So um, one of the things we're looking at right now is we're um, finishing up interview, or not finishing up, working on interviews, um, and you know, coding them as we're interviewing folks, um, and coding the transcripts is um, we're actually looking at kind of deconstructing um, the five love languages. Um, of Gary Chapman, um, and I don't know if you're familiar with his work, um, but he is a, uh, a Christian author um, who it's been pointed out that he has some homophobic beliefs um, and that you know his um, framework of the five love languages um, really came from these um, Christian normative assumptions of marriage, um, obviously with that, the heterosexuality, um, of marriage and um, the assumptions around, you know, who can marry, um, and you know, you have to do a little bit of digging to find those um, homophobic assumptions that that go a little bit uh, deeper, particularly in his work in which he's talking about love languages and children. Um, but that's that's one of the things we're kind of looking for is, you know, do our participants, you know, are they familiar with this this work, and then, you know, what is that not capturing is really what we're interested in is how do the five love languages maybe show up but also what isn't in there or what assumptions are embedded in the five love languages i've personally noted um, in my in my day job i do a lot of um, social media work for our office and i have noticed on social media that um, the the love languages is it's popular right now and folks are using it in joking manner saying like oh my love language is pizza or my love language is you know not one of the five love languages but then there's also folks talking about, you know, what are your self sabotaging behaviors? I've seen that trend on TikTok of, you know, how do you self sabotage? Oh, you isolate. But your love language is quality time. Um, so it's it seems that this is becoming a part of the social discourse. But we're not interrogating it further to say what what isn't captured by these five. I'm always very reluctant to accept anything that's like limited, uh, you know, by a number or something like that, such as a binary. Um, and so if we're saying oh, there's only these five categories and they show up in a specific way and there's words written about it, like that tell you how they show up, um, you know, in a book and, you know, you take this personality quiz and these are your five lo- love languages and that's it. I'm skeptical of that. And so that's one of the things we're looking at. And I think that, that personally, um, that Will be helpful for educators who who work with students. I know that my office works with the five languages framework, though we do acknowledge with our participants, you know, the history and the background of that, because there isn't really an alternative way of thinking about this. You know, what are some educational tools that we could potentially create for folks to think about this? So obviously, we don't know because the research is not done, um, and we don't know how these things are showing up for students. But you know, really giving educators a space to think a little bit more expansively about things like love languages and about queer relationships, I think is important. Um, From a sexual violence prevention standpoint, we, you know, we have those statistics and those those rates of um, experiences among students, but we don't really have any of those alternative stories to share with folks and so how we can kind of Think about that.
1: I think that there are so many ways that fellow educators can benefit from this work. I feel like, in some ways, I have a unique positionality because my wife is actually a high school teacher. And so she also talks about working with her queer high school students, her trans high school students, and the things that they're trying to navigate, the lack of role models or possibility models to even imagine not only that a healthy relationship could exist, but what that could possibly look like. So like, it's awesome. We have the It Gets Better project, like that's fabulous. But I think this takes that a step further in ways that really open up behind the curtain, if you will, of the ways that these queer students are navigating these beautiful, fabulous, healthy relationships. And I think that that creates opportunities Certainly like, yes, we plan to publish articles. Like I hope to have things in the Journal of College Student Development, attend conferences. But I'm also excited about finding ways to get this information, not only to higher education, but thinking about K-12 as well, where students really are struggling. Like, how do I make sense of this? So thinking, what would it look like to create materials that could be used in high school GSAs or some of those spaces, even sexual health education programs, different things where it really is, we have opportunities to amplify these students' experiences of love, the ways that students are talking about, I was in a two-year relationship and as we were navigating it, my partner and I both were on a journey of gender and, the gender that we thought we identified with at the end, now we both identify as different genders and this is how we navigated that complexity in our relationship with love and support for one another. So I think the opportunity for having that affirmation of self for students in so many different ways is, like I get goosebumps even just thinking about it because it's so beautiful hearing students share that and given the lack of information, especially with all of the recent legislation and the other things, like how could having access to this truly make a difference for students in the ways that they think about themselves and providing a resource for educators that is something other than here are the barriers, here are the problems, here are the challenges, a space that really does get to celebrate, celebrate queer and trans students.
0: It's so powerful. I feel like I, I really do want to speak with both of you again once uh once you're at that point with the with the research. I I absolutely just think, you know, the the expansive reimagining of what is possible and also just sort of the problematizing of who got to define healthy in the first place? Um, you know, whose terms were those on? I just I, I find again being in that sustained state of curiosity, Jordan, that you were mentioning. Is great for all educators, right? We we do need to to stay in that place of of wonder. So I I know that some of my listeners will be thinking, you know, I want to engage with research that again centers LGBTQ plus perspectives. And I'm guessing you've probably come across some learnings that um, you know, some some sort of shared wisdom perhaps that you might have for those who would like to do research um, you know, with with a similar focus, do you have any advice that you might offer to future researchers?
1: I feel like there's so much that we've learned through navigating this process. As someone who's done queer research for almost a decade now, I feel like there have been things that have really emerged in this study differently than they have in some of the past studies. And I think in doing research with LGBTQ participants. I really appreciate the language that you used of with, as opposed to on, because it really does make a difference that we're not standing aside and like voyeuristically trying to look in on these students, but really honoring their agency, honoring their brilliance, their ability to positively contribute and be not just a subject of the research, but actually be part of the work that we're doing. As we've gone through this, I think continually with doing LGBTQ research, the conversations about language and terms and defining things has continually come up of what do you put on an interest survey? How expansive are the options? How much time should we take really understanding, okay, if this student says that they're bisexual, what does that mean to them? How do they define it as opposed to us imparting our ideas and conceptions onto students? Doing this study, I think, has also shown how excited students are to talk about positive things, to talk about joy, to be able to share those stories and to have an affirming space where they can do that. Where I think folks doing research, it's really worth thinking about not only what are the goals and outcomes that I have for this research, but what are the goals that I have for the participants who are part of this? What is the experience that we want them to have as part of the study where it's almost as if the study itself can be an affirming intervention for people to be able to have that space and really honoring that within the process That it's not just about me getting publications or like saying, hey, we want to share this with educators, but how do we honor the people who are participating and sharing so honestly, openly, and authentically about really intimate parts of their lives?
0: That's stunning and beautiful. Again, just almost like a rebranding of research as a healing process, um, I, I think is is just such a profound way to look at it. And I realize that for anyone doing the work of research, of course, you know we're influenced by others who have come to this work before us um, or along the same times. Uh, and I'm wondering if, um, again, I know I've got a lot of listeners who are really interested in the research project, are trying to help their learners unpack the various mindsets and skill sets that you need in order to do research. Could, um, could you point us to a few folks who have been influential to you as you've thought about um, your identity as a researcher and the researcher that you, that you hope to be?
2: Sure. One of the things I I forgot that this came up in one of our initial planning conversations, Um, but I was recently introduced and also listened to a podcast episode um, with um, the author um, and photographer Jamal Jordan, um, who has a book called Queer Love and in Oh, I butchered that. So Jamal Jordan, uh, "Queer Love in Color." Um, so it's a photography book that is um, alongside um, stories of uh, people of color who are queer and in relationship with one another. Um, and I just like looked up the book and I was like, "Yeah, this this is definitely one that has um, that helped move me towards this." You know, what does joy look like, and what are the complexities in our relationships looking like? Um, and I also think with that push towards the photo elicitation as a method, um, that really resonated with me. The other person that's just coming to mind is someone who um, I think has really influenced me um, just in the way that I think about things and the uh, approach that I take and engaging in nonviolent communication is um, Alokveed Manan, um, who is a poet, a writer. Um, we've uh, listened to them on some podcasts in classes with Amanda before um but their work i really think is very impactful and powerful in showing people the way that queerness um can show up in the world and and really addressing the the different oppressions that exist in that not not going at this very eloquently I, I like it's hard to hard to think about all these people that um have influenced the way that i think about things i listen to a lot of podcasts um i will say most of them revolve around race so i listen to a lot of npr podcasts Um, One of my favorites that I recently listened to was um, the This Land podcast, which deals with um, a lot of stuff related to indigenous folks, um, the Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, It was their most recent series. Um, But I really just try to listen to things that are gonna challenge me to think differently about the world. Um, And that's really my goal when I'm I'm consuming media um, as well as research is challenging myself to think differently um, because if I don't, then I'm, then I'm not really, really learning anything.
1: So unlike Jordan, who listens to lots of podcasts, my pop culture knowledge and engagement is incredibly limited. Um, like a friend just had me do- download Spotify two days ago and it was like my first foray into music experiences. Um, So for me, when I think about folks who have influenced my thinking as researchers, I think when I go back to my doctoral experience, I feel so incredibly fortunate that I had the opportunity to work with Dr. Sherry Watt while I was at the University of Iowa, as well as Dr. Jody Lindley, because both of them approach research from a space that really does center how do we humanize people? that really pushes the bounds of so much of the post-positivistic perspectives that people bring in thinking about research. And they really empowered me to feel like I could push those norms, that I could not just exist as a queer person, but that I could actually study queer topics and queer the research process altogether. That that was possible, that there was space for doing that. And I think both through their scholarship as well as their ways of being, they've pushed me and helped me to be a better researcher who is able to do projects like this, where we can really sit down collaboratively and push the boundaries of who has power in this space. How do we talk about people's experiences? how do we deconstruct the ways that research is so often discussed and talked about? And the other person who really comes to mind, um, a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to attend the ACPA College Student Educators International Conference. And I attended a presentation by Dr. Stephanie Waterman and Dr. DL Stewart that was focused on decolonizing research and As they were talking and speaking and sharing I feel like so much of what they were talking about deeply resonated with thinking about the ways that knowledge production is rooted in colonial systems and how can we deconstruct that how can we use not only the work that we produce but the processes so thinking about this study one example that came up when we first started with the photos, we told folks like, don't bring pictures of yourselves. Like we don't wanna see your faces because Jordan and I wrestled with, well, do we post people's faces like in an article? Because then we're using pseudonyms, but you're not anonymous if your face is in my journal article. And we certainly didn't wanna like blur faces because that felt differently problematic. And, listening to Dr. Stewart talk, Dr. Stewart was saying, we think of these ethical guidelines created by IRB as this is what we need to uphold. But what does it mean if instead we think about these as the basic institutional protections and shift that mindset, which then helped me to say, if students wanna share these beautiful photos where you can see the love in their eyes, where it clearly shows them and their partner, and they consent and their partner consents to say, yes, we wanna share this with the world. Who are we to say, actually, no, ethically, that's not okay because IRB wants you to have a pseudonym. Like, so really thinking about the other folks who have queered research processes that I think help us to come up with a more humanistic product at the end, as well as having
0: that humanizing process for students as we move through. It's so important just that, you know, that need to continually really think about gatekeeping. How is that showing up? How am I a part of that? Um, and I, I, again, I, I just feel like so much of our conversation has really been um, just kind of dancing with this notion of reimagining. Uh, and for sure, I, I feel like your, your study research, when it comes out, I think that is, is really going to help folks do just that. For listeners who might want to support, are you still in the process of, of trying to find participants to partner with? How, how, might they, um, how might they go about partnering with you if that's the case or um, letting others who they believe might be interested in that partnership, um, how can they find you?
2: Yeah, we're, we're definitely still recruiting. Uh, Amanda, do you have thoughts on how they could get connected with us?
1: So like we have links for people to submit the interest survey.
0: Can we send those to you or what do you recommend as the best way for people? Absolutely. I'll be sure to whatever links you have, they, they will be over there in the show notes. Do you have sort of a time frame? So if somebody is listening to this and it's, uh, it's September there, it's not April 2022 anymore. Um, at what point would it not necessarily be a great time to, to reach out for partnerships? Actually, As we've
1: conducted interviews, we realize just how valuable and important this study is. And so we've actually submitted numerous grants to receive additional funding to continue the study beyond just the present semester, the present time here in spring, summer, 2022. And the hope is being able to continue this work, continue learning about students' relationships Hopefully at some point, I'd love to have a longitudinal picture of how have students conceptions and ways of engaging in behaviors and strategies and relationships. evolved over the last 10 years so for the moment we're definitely taking participants through summer 2022 and hopefully if folks want to give us some money to be able to move beyond that the hope and op- the hope and goal really would be to continue this as an ongoing project.
2: Our program does have a um, social media. So if folks are interested in the higher education program that I'm currently in and that Dr. Mollet is the program coordinator for, um, I can pull up that. I believe it's KU, it is KU higher ed, just like all lowercase. Um, so if folks are interested in that program, um, there's some contact information for the program um, in there but that's probably the one that would be like the most relevant to uh, our study, I guess, is, is the information about the program that we're both associated with.
1: I also have a Twitter, it's just Amanda Mollet. I am not the most frequent tweeter, but particularly as we continue to get findings and information from the study, I'm very excited about being able to share those out through that space. We're also scheduled to present at the LGBTQ Research Symposium, which is taking place as a virtual event, June 2nd through 3rd. And at that, we'll be sharing some of the visual data kind of as a preliminary toe in the water of some of the things that we're finding and being able to talk about and share that work in that space. And Dr. D.L. Stewart, who I mentioned, is actually one of the keynotes at that conference. So I'm very excited about sharing our work in that as well.
0: I will also be sure to include the link to that. Um, I am just so thankful to both of you. Uh, again, I know that a project like this takes a lot of energy, a lot of patience, a lot of that emotional labor, uh, me research. Again, you know, it, I, think, I, I think it is intensive in that way. So I do appreciate you taking the time to share this incredibly important work that you're doing with our listeners. And I really look forward to, um, to just sort of following the journey. So thank you for sharing this part of it with us.
1: Thank you. This has been fabulous and we're so excited to have the opportunity to hear more folks' stories and to be able to amplify those for current students as well as people in the future who are looking for those opportunities and possibilities of what healthy intimate relationships really can look like.